Well, thank you everybody for joining us. I'm Father Chris Alar here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy, and it's great to be back and continuing our Explaining the Faith series. We have a special episode for you today, one that has been asked of us for coming up on three years. And I was finally able to uh, talk with my great seminarian friend who attended seminary with me. You always hear me talk about seminary, and that's Daniel O'Connor. I'm going to today give a brief overview and then turn it over to him about the topic of divine will. And then we're going to come back up together because I got a lot of concerns for him to be able to answer a lot of questions that... Um, we should be asking. And Daniel's been kind enough to join us today to be able to help us sort through the divine will. Is it accepted by the church? Is it promoted by the church? Is it go against the church teaching? What do you need to know? So let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and hearts to always receive the grace to do your will. We ask not only to do your will, but to live in your will. And we ask all this through the intercession of our blessed Mother Mary and through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, welcome everybody. Um, like I said, we have a great opportunity to, to, to discuss a very important topic. And this here, what I'm going to do is give you a general overview and then turn it over to Daniel, because this overview is really from the Luisa Picaretta official website. So I'm just going to kind of summarize for you what they say and then have Daniel go through it. And then at the end of his talk, I'm going to come back up and we're going to have a friendly debate because I'm coming at it from this side of the skeptic, and he's coming at it from the side of the divine grace given through this incredible message. So stay with us. I think it's going to be a beautiful day. Now, this is a well-known movement, the divine will, that's gone throughout the world. There are many positives about it, but there are a lot of concerns, and that's what we want to talk about today. Let's look at our next slide. You know, it's very clear that if you look at the two great commandments of God, love God, love your neighbor, what do they roll up to? They really roll up into one. There's one great commandment. Do the will of God. Whether or not you get to heaven or not is doing the will of God. Your eternal salvation, what does it depend on? Doing the will of God. And that's why this is very important. The key is in our Our Father prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, living in the divine will means for the creature living with just one will. And that's the will of God, God's will, living in you. Your will takes a back seat. That's what this message is about. Basically, our will is replaced by God's will, so we are always perfectly united with him. That's how Mary was. Now, there is a difference, though. There is a great difference between doing God's will and living in the divine will. We can be slaves. You know, I really want to do this my way. I really want to do this. I want to enjoy this sin. I don't want to listen to what the church teaches Ah, but I'll do it. 
<laughs> that, that was described description of me in my 20s. <laughs> so you can see that we can submit to God's will. Millions of people do that, but grudgingly, they're not doing it. They're just suppressing their will, forcing themselves to follow God's will. Basically, they are doing God's will, but they're not living God's will. That's when living God's will is when God takes over. It's a possession. You know, we hear a lot about demonic possession. I'll be in Albany today uh, at 1.30 giving a talk at the women's conference about spiritual warfare. I'm going to talk about demonic possession. You know what the divine will is? God's possession of you and your will. So I'm, I was skeptical, and I still am. I'm going to plaster Daniel with a bunch of questions uh, here in a minute. And then I saw that there were some other saints, though, that have actually referred to this. And Daniel pointed this out to me. You know who he threw at me first? Faustina. Faustina. Uh-oh. So let's look at the slide. This is the words of St. Faustina from Diary 650. Oh, divine will. I went, uh-oh. You are the delight of my heart. For when I unite myself with your will, O Lord, your power works through me and takes the place of my feeble will. That's basically the entire message of the divine will. So now I have to start to relook at this, but I'm going to still give you a bunch of my concerns. Now, basically, living in the divine will means reigning with Jesus. Doing his will means just more than complying with his orders but Christ living in you. He's possessing you. <clears throat> By living in the divine will, the creature assumes the divine will as his own. Very powerful. We may say that living in the divine will means you're a son. And, and, and doing the will of God only means you're a servant. So, don't grudgingly just do the will of God, lovingly be a son where the will of God becomes you, you. And, 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 and no son can be deprived of it being an heir if you're truly a son of God. And so this is basically the life of the blessed in heaven. It's heaven on earth. And so this is powerful. Now Faustina, I'm not done with her yet, in, in the paragraph 1393 said, I live your divine life as do the elect in heaven. So basically, if you believe this devotion, let me be very clear here. You are not required to believe this under penalty of sin or risk of damnation. The question becomes, should you believe it? And that's what we're going to bring Daniel up. Now, the question is how a person could not only do the will of God, but possess it as his own. So, supposedly, Jesus declared to Luisa Picaretta, who Daniel's going to talk about, that this is a gift he is giving in the saddest of times. So Daniel, Daniel and I met on Thursday for several hours in my office, and we were talking about this. And it, it makes sense to me, doesn't it? Because doesn't the Bible tell us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? So sin is unprecedented today. Pius XII said mankind's more sinful today than he was at the time of the flood. And so God's going to give us more grace. So let's go to our next slide real quick. Now, with the understanding that Jesus has given these people who receive his divine will everything, and he has no greater gift to give than the possession of his will 
to win your love. This is about love. And what was the key the Bible tells us? It's all about love. And so to do his will is more, I'm sorry, it's more than just to do his will, as I said. It's to win the love of God, which God will love you unconditionally, but to love him back. Creatures will appreciate this great gift, and then they will reciprocate God's love and, and love him and others. Those are the two great commands that roll into one, do the will of God. Love God, love your neighbor. You do those things, you're doing the will of God. So the key point is the divine will operating in you as a creature, and then the creature divinely operating, God divinely operating in the creature. That's what this is all about. So a couple more slides real quick before Daniel comes up. This next slide, this is a reciprocity, okay? This is a very similar to the love in the Trinity. A perfect reciprocal love. <clears throat> you know, Jesus, here's another one Daniel threw at me. Blessed Conchita, this Mexican 20th century mystic. She was quoted as saying the mystical incarnation, which is basically another name for living in the divine will, is the grace of graces. It is a union of the same nature as that of the union of heaven, except that in paradise, the veil which conceals the divine disappears. For you will now keep ever in your soul my real and effective presence, God told her. Powerful. Now, it's not only doing, as I said, what God wants, but being sure that his will becomes a part of you. This is what it's about. It shapes you in your life to live and reign with God's will and, and, and in God's will. It's a constant exchange of human and divine will, which returns to the creature and the divine likeness that was lost through sin. Basically, if you believe this devotion, Jesus is saying, I'm going to return mankind to the way he was before sin. Where you were living perfectly in my will. I'm not fully bought into this yet, but talking and learning and listening to this, I think there's a lot here. And as I said, I'm going to fire these objections at Daniel and see what he has to say. Because there are a lot of questions that need to be answered. So basically, this is letting Jesus overtake you so that it is he living in you, not you living in yourself. Jesus did this by completely entrusting himself to the will of the Father. You know, Jesus lived the divine will. Jesus fully lived the divine will because he perfectly did the will of the Father. His will, his human will, was backseated, eliminated. And so indeed, as in Christ's humanity, his divinity took center stage, so we become like Jesus when we do this. It's like Mary. Whoever wants to live in the divine will has a powerful guide here in Mary. She did it. This will, she will help you to compensate for what you lack and will shape other things in you to be able to be like Christ. She formed Jesus in her womb. She can do the same with you. How about this? St. John Utes. Jesus Christ should be living in us and that we should live only in him. Our life should be a continuation and expression of his life. That's basically what it is. And then next slide. Blessed Dina Belanger. 
She's another 20th century mystic. Notice these all came after Louisa. She said, quote, it is as if my soul no longer had any connection with my body. This grace is a foretaste of my participation in the divine life. I say a foretaste because it is the state of the elect in heaven, yet I in bodily form am still on earth. You're living heaven on earth, supposedly. Next slide. Jesus also teaches Luisa Picaretta was a victim. Was a victim. But in his divine will, she was bedridden for 60 years. Let's take a look at that slide. There she is in her bed. 60 years. Now, one would have expected obedience, surrender to God's will, and all that is beautiful. But it is entering or melting into the will of God by replacing her will, this is what she said, in everything with the divine will, in an attitude of active and conscious participation in the will of God. Louisa talked about merging herself in the holy will of Jesus, joining his humanity and constituted as a gift by the single will with Jesus. Now, instead of having her will, she has Jesus as well. Like Mary, she repeated that humility. And then you got the final, um, another slide here. Jesus, you know, basically Louisa said she was called to imitate the way in which Jesus' humanity fulfilled the will of the Father. There's Jesus. Does it look like he's doing his will? He's not doing his will at all. He's doing the will of the Father. And so in this way of living, Louisa Picaretta, we consider, or excuse me, if you follow these writings, you consider her the origin or the first that many others will follow. Faustina followed her. Blessed Dina Boulanger followed her. There were others. So why her? I'm not sure. But Daniel's going to tell us. She lived when the times began to really get bad. And maybe this is the timing. God has always picked timing of certain people at certain times in the world. She is just a, an opportunity for us to learn from. She'll be, she describes herself as a ring to which a crowd of souls will attach, living in the divine will of Jesus. And so Jesus, again, what's buying me into this in a certain way is Faustina. Here's what Jesus said to St. Faustina in paragraph 955. Know, my daughter, that the entire Holy Trinity finds its special delight in you because you live exclusively by the will of God. No sacrifice can compare with this. And then our last slide, Jesus to Faustina. You will cancel out your will absolutely. And instead, my complete will shall be accomplished in you. And Faustina answered, Diary 374, from today on, my own will does not exist. Wow. So with that, we welcome my good friend, Daniel O'Connor. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for coming today.
Well, thank you so much for that, Father Chris. I've been devoted, this has been my life's passion, the divine will, for, I don't know, 13 years now. I've been speaking and writing on it for almost a decade. And I think that Father Chris, who was still, was still kind of skeptical about this, I think he just gave a better introduction to the divine will than I ever have in, <laughs> in 15 minutes here. What the heck? That's, that's not fair. <clears throat> By the way, if you're sitting in the front, in the front pew, don't worry, I'm not going to get you sick. I've, I've gotten over this cold a week ago, and this cough still won't go away. I did, did a double dose of uh, cough suppressant right before this, so hopefully that'll kick in in a minute here, but you, I won't get you sick. Anyway, that was very edifying, very inspiring. And uh, e even though he's still wondering about some things, which is fine. In fact, I've been introducing this for so long to people. And sometimes the first thing I say is, well, I'm about to tell you, you better be hesitant. In fact, you're a bad Catholic if you're not hesitant about some of the things I'm about to tell you. <laughs> so it's, it's perfectly fine to have these concerns. In fact, you should have them. But yes, I think we can indeed address them. And I'll do my best with that today by God's grace. Uh, if I may, let's start with just a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Our Lady Queen of Heaven, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Saint Faustina, pray for us. Saint Juan Diego, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I think it's so fitting that we are talking about the divine will here on the feast day of Saint Juan Diego, the seer uh, who was given the apparitions by Our Lady of Guadalupe several, about 500 years ago or so. Because what was going on in the church at that point, the church was in absolute crisis. We had this revolt going on in Christendom in Europe millions upon millions leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, we had all these, we were trying our best to, to, to stem that tide of souls away from the church and, and sometimes succeeding, sometimes not. But then what happened shortly thereafter? Our lady comes in, she says, don't worry, I've got this, I've got this covered. She appears to St. Juan Diego and practically overnight, we've got more, vastly more, millions more converts to the faith then were lost across the Atlantic in Christendom itself. And I believe that through the divine mercy and the divine will, I believe that the same thing is going to happen in the times moving forward. We've got an even greater crisis today. I believe we're seeing the beginnings of the great apostasy in the church. But God is in charge. And I believe that through the divine mercy and the divine will, he is going to bring this enormous flow of souls back into the church, far more than have left her, especially even the Muslims. Jesus told Luisa Picaretta that Jerusalem gave Rome redemption, and Rome is going to give Jerusalem sanctification. What's Jerusalem right in the middle of? Well, the whole Islamic world, and I think they're going to come in droves in due time. Anyway, that's one especially fitting thing about today that we're speaking about this, but also I'm so honored to be here at the Divine Mercy Shrine, which I've been making pilgrimages to for so long. This Divine Mercy and Divine Will, I believe that they are the two, these, these messages to St. Faustina and the Servant of God, Louis Picaretta, I believe that these are God's two great final efforts in the world his two definitive, I dare say, private 
revelations. And now this is just Daniel O'Connor speculating here, but I think that these are his final efforts of the two things that only ultimately matter. When at, at the end of the day, there's only two things that actually matter. And those two things, what are they? Money and Facebook followers. <laughs> no, did I, did I get that wrong? <laughs> I think that might have been a little off. No, so what are the two, only two things that matter? Salvation and sanctification. Getting to heaven and building up as many treasures in heaven as possible because flesh is grass. This, the, everything temporal is going to be gone in a blink of an eye. All that ultimately matters is what endures for eternity. So getting to eternity, salvation, building up as many treasures there as possible, sanctification. The only time to build up treasures in heaven is now. You can't build up treasures in heaven once you're already there because all merit ceases then. As Jesus told St. Faustina, now is the only time for merit. You can't even do it in purgatory. In purgatory, all you can do is suffer to, to be purified for heaven. No, no additional merit is acquired there. So don't go to purgatory. I, I, I do not give you permission to go to purgatory. You gotta go straight to heaven. That's, my, that's what I'm asking all of you to do. Aim to go straight to heaven. And if you have to go to purgatory, praise God, that's his will. But aim to go straight to heaven. So we build up as many treasures in heaven now as possible through sanctification. We above all want to get to heaven, salvation. And this is straight from scripture. God wills that some men be saved, God wills that all men be saved. Now, unfortunately, there will be those who reject his mercy, but God wills that all men be saved, so that's the first component of his will, salvation. And what else does scripture say? This is uh, Thessalonians, so that was the uh, first letter saying Timothy, and there's the first letter of Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Those are the two things we know are always his will. You don't know for sure if it's his will that you're cured of this or that disease, or you get this or that job. You don't, you don't actually, you, it's fine to pray for these things as long as we give our fiat at the end. No, not my will, but thine be done. It's okay to pray for them, but we don't know if there is will. We always know that salvation and sanctification are his will. So doesn't it make sense that he would have two final efforts in the world? Couldn't be a new public revelation, as we'll get to in the objections. We'll never have a new public revelation, absolutely not. So it has to be through private revelation. Two final efforts, one of salvation, one of sanctification, divine mercy, divine will. That is my, is, again, I'm not speaking for anyone but myself here, speculation. I think those are God's great efforts, his great final efforts in the world. But they also mutually enrich each other. They, they go hand in hand amazingly. I've been uh, extremely devoted to both, almost almost perfectly in line with each other, Faustina and Luisa, Divine Mercy and Divine Will. And they both, uh, Father Chris read a few excerpts from Jesus' words to St. Faustina and St. Faustina's own words, which are exactly what Jesus tells Luisa about the Divine Will. Not, not even like partially, just exactly what he tells her. But also the flip side is true. We've got the Divine Mercy all over the Divine Will. Jesus tells Luisa, my daughter, this is a direct quote from, from Luisa's writings here, my daughter, the souls who shine most like bright gems in the crown of my divine mercy are the souls who have more trust. He says, trusting souls are the outpouring and the amusement of my love, the most graceful and the richest ones. He also tells Louisa, you must know that one of the purest joys that the creature can give me is trust in me. I feel her as my daughter. I do what I want with her. I can say that trust makes me known for who I am. 
the immense being. My goodness is without end, my mercy without limits. And when I find more trust, I love her more and I abound more towards creatures. So the more trust, the more he can abound with us. He says, I feel sad. This is also Jesus to Louisa here. I feel sad when they think I'm severe, that I make more use of justice than mercy. He's talking about some people here behave with me, direct quote, as if I wanted to strike them at each circumstance. Oh, how dishonored I feel by these ones. This leads them to remain at a distance from me. But if they just took a look at my life, they would notice that I only did one act of justice to defend the house of my father. All the rest was mercy. Mercy my conception, mercy my birth, mercy my words, my works, my steps, the blood I shed, my pains. Everything in me was merciful love, Jesus tells Louisa. Everything in me was merciful love. Yet people fear me. They should fear themselves more than me. And I don't know about you, but that sounds, it sounds like I'm reading it straight out of Faustina. But that's actually a quote right in uh, Louisa's writings there. Exalting the divine mercy in the, the most superlative possible terms, saying those with most trust in my mercy are the richest souls. So we really need, I'm convinced that we absolutely need both of these, divine mercy and divine will. By absolutely, I don't mean it's um, as Father Chris rightly said, I don't mean it's a requirement of Catholic faith. It's not, it's not a heresy if you reject it, but need in another sense of the term. Extremely important, as we'll get to later. Okay, so what I want to do is introduce Louisa and living in the divine will from the foundation that we always must approach it with, namely scripture, sacred tradition, magisterium. It's absolutely unacceptable to approach any other way than from this foundation as Catholics we already know, hopefully, that we can never accept anything that contradicts anything in scripture or magisterium or sacred tradition, but that's not enough. It can't just not contradict it. It's gotta harmonize with it. It's gotta be an organic development, of, as Cardinal uh, St. John Henry Newman said. It's got, it can't be one of rupture. So in order to properly uh, introduce Louisa, we need to do that from the standpoint of scripture, tradition, and magisterium, and I'm gonna do my best to do that in a very short amount of time here. And I, I realized at like 2 a.m. last night, what am I thinking? I've got like, I, why, did I, why did I prepare so much stuff? Because I, I get excited every single time I want to talk about this. I, I, do you do the same thing sometimes? So I, I just, I got excited. I was on the phone with Father Chris almost midnight last night, and then I stayed up for hours and hours longer because I realized I got carried away. I wanted to talk about everything. I, I, I won't be able to fit in everything today. I'm going to have to skip. You'll see me just putting a bunch of pages aside. You can find it all in my book, Thy Will Be Done, but I'm going to try to get on the uh, essentials right now. So if we want to really uh, get down to the basics of the faith, if we want to make sure that we are drilling down to the bedrock of the faith, so that we can't go wrong, then we should go with what the catechism, we should always open the catechism and the Bible first. Those should always be our two go-to things. Everything, including Louisa, has to be filtered through that. So we go to the catechism, and I want to pop quiz, I want to give you a pop quiz right here. What does the catechism of the Catholic Church teach is the fundamental Christian prayer, the quintessential prayer of the church, the summary of the whole gospel, and the most perfect of prayers. Yeah, you all knew it. That's not, I was supposed to trick you up or something. But yes, the Our Father. And that's straight from the Catechism. And it's not even just the Catechism. The Catechism there is quoting uh, fathers of the church and doctors of the church. They're all saying, like, 
the, the Our Father is everything. It's a summary of everything. It's the whole gospel in one prayer. And of course, we know that. It's the one and only prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught and commanded us to pray. And every word of the Our Father is absolutely essential. Don't ever neglect a single word in it. But even within the Our Father, there is a hierarchy. Some theologians have spoken of it as like a rainbow reaching up to heaven with the first half reaching the pinnacle there at the, at the central petition and coming back down to earth with the invocations that pertain to our own needs. And what is at that climax of the Our Father, that pinnacle? Father Romano Guardini, great 20th century theologian, priest, and philosopher, he wrote, when the disciples asked Jesus to, pray, uh, to teach them how to pray, he gave them the Our Father, the core of which is undoubtedly, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the one petition, the third petition, that encapsulates all the rest, all the rest in the Our Father and all the rest in the whole faith. That is the faith in 11 words. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There cannot be a greater prayer than to desire that earthly, thing, earthly things equal heavenly ones. That's St. John Cashin. It's a quote from him. He's a father of the church. So you can't even imagine a greater prayer than that. Everything's in it. Thousands of pages of Luis's writings you could actually ignore them all and just look at those 11 words and you could say, that's it, that's all, that's all it is. And you wouldn't even be irreverent by doing that, even if you believed in Louisa, because Jesus agrees with you. He told Louisa, uh, at one of her later volumes here, he told Louisa, I taught thee our Father wanting the human will united with ours. When he speaks in the plural there, that's the Trinity. So that it might yearn, that it would come to reign on earth. Therefore, everything I've manifested to you Louisa, everything I've told you, uh, all these writings, are enclosed in these words alone. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Louisa was given thousands of pages of revelations from Jesus. And Jesus himself says, no, actually, it's all just that. It's all just in that. It's all in thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Servant of God, Archbishop Louis Martinez, great 20th century mystic, and of course an archbishop, his cause is in, in progress now. He wrote a, a, an amazing work called The Sanctifier on the Holy Spirit. He was actually the spiritual director of Blessed Conchita. He said that Jesus laid bare the fundamental longing of his soul when he taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the fundamental longing of Jesus' soul. The accomplishment of the will of the Father on earth as in heaven. Not kind of like as in heaven, not in some parts of earth as it is in heaven, not just, not just imitating heaven or obeying heaven, but on earth as in heaven. Those are Jesus' words, and those are the fundamental longing of his soul. All right, so that's the foundation there in Scripture. What then happens at the close of the times of the foundation? So with scripture being done, scripture was, was done at the uh, death of the last apostle, St. John, and, that, and at that point, public revelation is completed. We will never have a new public revelation. Does that mean that God was done? Does God, you know, when, when public revelation is completed, does God just say, all right, phew, finally I'm done with that. I don't have to worry about earth for a few more thousand years until I come to put it out of its misery. No, it's the opposite. The, the catechism, and I wish I had the quote here in front of me, but uh, the catechism says, now at that point, we actually entered the end times, at the point of public revelations uh, completion there. 
And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost actually ushers in an even greater era of grace, not less. God, that, that wasn't a decrease of God's work in the world. That was an increase of God's work in the world. St. Vincent of Lorenz, he was a fifth century father of the church. He wrote, certainly there is great progress in the church, even exceedingly great progress. For who would be so envious of others and hateful toward God as to try to prohibit it? This is a father of the church saying you'd be hateful toward God to try to prevent his work of bringing the church forward to greater holiness. So he continues. It is necessary that understanding, knowledge, wisdom should grow and advance vigorously in individuals as well as in the community, in a, per, in a single person and in the whole church, gradually over the course of ages and centuries. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, public revelation was done, yes, but bringing the full fruits of redemption, bringing that full fruits out into the world, that would take centuries and centuries. And I submit to you, that that, develop of, that development of centuries of growth of the Holy Spirit is something we are now reaching the crescendo of before our eyes, even in the very quotes that you heard Father Chris read some of to you just a few minutes ago. All right, so no new public revelation, but a development and a flourishing and eventually a flowering and a bearing of the fruit of the same plant, not a new plant, we can never have a new public revelation, the flowering of the same plant that was planted with public revelation. Pope Benedict XVI, he said, some people view the entire history of the church as a gradual decline. But then he says, no, Christ's, he, he actually quotes the Latin here, he says, opera Christi non deficiunt sed proficiunt. Christ's works go forwards, not backwards. He's always increasing the level of grace in the world. He's always increasing what he's doing in souls and in the church and in the world. He's always moving forward. This is not a decline. So we imitate, we always look to in, we always uh, derive inspiration, hopefully, from the great virtues of the early Christians, of course. But we don't want to subscribe to the heresy of primitivism either, which says, no, we just have to keep everything exactly as it was then, because God is actually at work in the lives of the saints and the mystics, bringing forward what we are called to. Now, what is the primary prerogative of God in bringing his work forward? Well, again, I say that it is found in Matthew 6.10, the accomplishment of of the will of the Father on earth as it is in heaven. But we actually have to go back even further, don't we, to see what God is up to. God did a few things before redemption, didn't he? In fact, he had quite a bit to do. And it goes way back to the very beginning. So we got the, the fiat there of the Our Father, that, that fundamental longing of Jesus' soul, as the servant of God, Archbishop Louis Martinez says, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that fiat. But we can, we can rewind several thousand years, can't we? We can rewind to the very beginning. So Luisa's words here, uh, uh, Jesus' words to Luisa speak about this idea of a third fiat. And that doesn't make any sense unless we go back to the very beginning and look at the first. Um, and I, and I, I wanted to ask Father about this, but Father, we were speaking a couple days ago, and this is something I learned from you, uh, then about something that Father Seraphim would often teach on, these three great acts of mercy of God. And I had no idea that this was a teaching of his, but what did he say on that? The three great acts of mercy were the... Creation, redemption, and sanctification. So, he, so he's teaching this this whole time, and I didn't know that Father Seraphim, he's pointing these three great, are they, did he call them the acts of mercy or the interventions of mercy? The three great acts of mercy. 
Creation, redemption, sanctification. So in the, this is the three basic things that God's doing with the world. First, he makes it. The very beginning, this fiat of sanctification. Um, what we're seeing now as a, as a fiat, if you will, of sanctification, this is not at all, we'll get into this in the uh, answers to objections, but this is not at all a new dispensation. Not, we, we, dispensationalism is a heresy, this idea, or millenarianism even, this idea that there'll be a new, the age of the church will pass away, and there'll be this other age, this age of the spirit, no more sacraments and, and hierarchy in church. No, that's the opposite of what Jesus tells Louisa. He says what's coming, this fiat of sanctification, is the full flourishing of the church. Not the sacraments passing away, but the sacraments acquiring their full vigor in our lives. We become living Eucharists through this. That's what we strive towards at least. But anyway, we have to put this in the context of the first fiat here. The first fiat. What was the first word that God himself said? What did the universe come into being by way of? Is it a cosmic accident, a quantum evolution or something? No. Came in through a word. The first word God said? Fiat. So we've got the fiat of redemption. Fiat voluntas tua, thy will be done. But that itself is an echo of the very first fiat. Fiat lux. And then there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So the first word, the universe came into being through God speaking this fiat. He spoke the universe into existence, and I'm throwing papers all over the place here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. But that wasn't really the longing of God's heart, was it, to make light. He always saves the best for last. So he makes the plants and the animals and the sea and everything after that. But then finally, he makes man and woman in his own image and likeness. And then, so after he makes everything, he says, and God saw that it was good. But then God makes man and woman in his own image and likeness. And he saw that it was very good. This is what he was ultimately after. Only man and woman, only us, only descendants of Adam and Eve are made in his image. Nothing else is. We are the apple of his eye. We are everything to God. <laughs> what our history, our life, your life, that's, that's his primary prerogative. That's everything for him, you. Unfortunately, man did not last long in that state of the fiat, did he? He chose his own will over the will of God. Jesus tells Louisa, do you want to know why Adam sinned? Because he forgot that I loved him. And he forgot to love me. If Adam remembered that I loved him very much and that he was obliged to love me, he never would have decided to disobey me. So first love ceased and then began sin. And as soon as he stopped loving his God, true love for himself ceased. So sin began with forgetting, forgetting God's love. And isn't that how it happens with us as well? We forget God's love for us. We forget what he's done for us. We get distracted by the things of the world, the concerns of the world, the pleasures of the world, the desires we have in the world. Maybe that happened to Adam too, looking around at how good the garden was in and of itself, but forgetting that it was all about God and God's love. And Adam forgot that God loved him. So after that, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, dialoguing with the devil, eating the, you're, you're, you've already lost once you start dialoguing with the devil. They sinned, they dialogued with the devil, they ate the fruit, and then God gave up. 
Is that what happened? Did he give up? <coughs> no. <coughs> Quite the opposite. He did not have a great reset. He did not say, okay, new universe. He didn't give up. But did he love us a little bit less after the fall? Do you love your own children less when they sin? No. Are you a better parent than God? No. Jesus told Louisa, my daughter, my love was not extinguished because of the fall of man, but it became more ignited. And even though my justice justly punished him and condemned him, my love kissing my justice without delay promised the future redeemer. And I said to the deceitful serpent with the empire of my power, you have made use of a woman to snatch man from my divine will, and I, by means of another woman, will knock down your pride, and her immaculate foot will crush your head. These words burned the infernal serpent more than hell itself, Jesus tells Louisa. He was more burned by hearing God say that the woman would crush his head. He was more burned by that than he was by hell. Because he knows the devil hates God, but he knows that God is God, and he knows that God's word, what? Will be fulfilled. Absolute guarantee. So the devil is not tempted to doubt God's word. He hates God, but he knows that anything God says is a guarantee to happen. So as, as soon as he tempts man to fall, he thinks he's won. And then immediately, the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15, is given. And immediately the devil knows he's over. He's done with that didn't stop his rage, though, of course. Now, we have to fast forward. In order for me to fit this in the remaining several minutes here and get to Louisa herself, I've got to fast forward 4,000 years. But nothing happened in those 4,000 years anyway. There was just a bunch of water that rained down, and they forgot to put the unicorns on the uh, ship. And <laughs> I'm still angry at Noah for that, for forgetting to put the unicorns in the ark. It's just, what the heck? But anyway, no, a lot happened. And then that, that was salvation history, those four, those those thousands of years from the fall to Jesus, to, to Our Lady's fiat and Jesus, that, that was what we call salvation history. And all of that was a preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the redemption. There was always a faithful remnant, even if it was just a little remnant, that knew that God's promise would be fulfilled. That knew that the Redeemer that he promised in the beginning, that he, they knew he would come. And they never stopped longing for that and praying for that. And 4,000 years later, we hear what words? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be done unto me according to thy word. And what is that in Latin? Fiat. Fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum. At that moment, what happened? Just like when the priest says, this is my body. At that moment, a miracle occurs. Well, a similar miracle occurred 2,000 years ago. Pope Benedict XVI, he taught, the moment the angel of the Lord came to Mary with the great announcement of the incarnation, she gave her reply, and then transpired the greatest event in our history, the incarnation. The word became flesh. Mary placed, and, and, and then he goes on to explain how this happened. So this is the greatest thing that's ever happened, the word became flesh. Why? Because, and, and how did it happen, I mean? Because of the fiat of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pope Benedict teaches this happened because Mary placed her entire being at the disposal of God's will. The will of Mary coincides with the will of the Son in the Father's unique project of love, and in her, 
Heaven and earth are united. This mystery is the purpose of the incarnation and redemption. Heaven and earth being united because the will of Mary coincides perfectly with the will of God and she gives her fiat and that precipitates the greatest event within the entire history of the world. That's everything Pope Benedict says. It all comes down to that. And it's true, the fiat is everything. Pope Benedict continues here in another address. He says, Adam, and we ourselves are Adam, thought that the no was the peak of freedom. But the height of freedom is the yes, the conformity with God's will, the unification of his will with the divine. It is in the yes that man becomes truly free. And this is the drama of Gethsemane. Now he's talking about Jesus' fiat. Not my will, but yours be done. It is the transferring of the human will to the divine will that the real person is born. And the whole human being is at issue here. The entire question of our life lies here. This yes, this greatest event within history from the yes of the Blessed Virgin Mary is mirrored also by the fiat of Jesus when he says, not only teaching the Our Father, but also saying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if anyone had the right to have his own will be done, who would that be? Jesus. And what did he say? Not my will, but thine be done. In the garden, the chalice, and he was not afraid of pain. It was the chalice of lost souls that he was agonizing over. Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus had a human will. Monotheism is a heresy. We'll get to that in the objections. And the, Jesus says the opposite of that to Louisa. He says, I had a human will, but I kept it sacrificed perfectly to the will of the Father. Why? because that's what we must also do. Sacrifice our human will completely to the divine will. And this brings us back to the promise of the Our Father. Okay, so now we're finally get back, getting back to this here. St. John Chrysostom, Father of the Church. Let's take a look at what he said. The saints have always taken this promise of the Our Father absolutely seriously. He says, Jesus did not say, thy will be done in me or in us, but everywhere on earth, so that error might be destroyed, truth implanted, and all wickedness cast out. Virtue return, and no difference in this respect be henceforth between heaven and earth. Again, that's St. John Chrysostom, father of the church, talking about the Our Father. And he said, look, he's pointing out the obvious, really. He's saying, there's no qualifications on thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's absolute. There are some qualifications, actually, in the second half. Forgive us our trespassing, or give us this daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Us, there's no guarantee as to who exactly is included in that us, because unfortunately not all will be forgiven. Some will be lost, and we must do everything we can to make that sum as small a number as possible, but some will be lost. So Jesus could not have said in the Our Father, forgive all their trespasses, because he knew that would have been a lie, and he can never lie. But he did say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. No qualifications. Therefore, it is an absolute decree. Now, St. John Chrysostom says, no difference be in this respect, meaning in, in, in terms of the accomplishment of God's will, that there will be no difference in this respect between heaven and earth. So another heresy we have to stay far away from is millenarianism. It says that actually there, there will be uh, no difference at all. That Jesus will come visibly on earth and, and will have uh, the beatific vision on earth and all that. No, it's, it's a Eucharistic reign, and we can understand as Catholics. It's a 
Will we pray for him to his will to reign, not for him to come physically? We only get to see him in heaven, only at the end of time with his physical coming or our own death. I got a quote here from Father George Kosicki, he's a hero of mine. He talks about the radiant reign of the Eucharistic Lord is what I long for and pray for. Come, Lord Jesus. I realize the glorious reign will come, but only we have passed through the purification of a corporate Calvary. But if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we too, we too will endure the travail for the sake of the joy that lies ahead. So the life of the church must follow the life of Jesus. He had his passion, but he also had his resurrection. And he had his time on earth, this, this reign before his ascension. That's what we long for here, as Father Kosicki says, this Eucharistic reign, a reign of his will, not a visible reign on earth. So we, we stay away from the millenarian heresy. More on that later, perhaps. St. Faustina said, the efforts of Satan and evil men are shattered and come to naught. In spite of Satan's anger, the divine mercy will triumph, and it will be worshipped by all souls. It's paragraph 1789. So God is going to win. He's going to triumph. The church will triumph. The divine mercy will triumph, which is to say the divine will shall reign. God always wins. It's only a matter of time. He's going to win beyond history. He's going to win at the end of history, but he's also going to win within history. Jesus tells Louisa, My daughter, as Adam sinned, God made him the promise of the future Redeemer. Centuries passed, and the promise did not fail. But as I came from heaven, I made another promise, more solemn, of the kingdom of my will. And this was in the Our Father. I made this promise in the solemnity of my prayer, praying for the Father's, let his kingdom come, which is the divine will on earth as it is in heaven. I placed my very self at the head of this prayer, knowing that such was his will, and that prayed by me, he would deny me nothing. And after I had formed this prayer before my celestial Father, certain that the kingdom of my divine will upon earth would be granted to me, I taught it to my apostles so that they might teach it, to the whole world, so that one might be the cry of all, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A promise more sure and solemn I could not make. Those are the most memorized words in history, by the way. They are Father. Those are the words that everybody knows. And that is what I'm always begging everyone, even saint and sinner alike, even someone who's a million miles away from the church, please pray they are Father every day. Because in doing that, Jesus tells Louisa, it, it, even if someone doesn't know anything about Louisa or any of these mystics, Louisa is not the mediatrix of all grace. Jesus said, with you I opened the door, now anyone can enter. When you're, he, said, he told Louisa, every our father that is prayed, even if they don't fully understand, it's okay if you don't fully understand the depths of these revelations or whatever, every our father that is prayed waters the seed of the kingdom. So I'm begging everyone in the whole world to at least commit for the rest of your life to pray at least one Our Father every day. Everybody in the, on earth, is what I, is, that's my goal. Everybody on earth doing that. And when that's happening, maybe then is when it will be fulfilled. All right, so all of, all of history is, is contained within two promises. Genesis 3.15, the promise of the coming of the Redeemer and the woman crushing the head of the serpent and the promise of Matthew 6.10, the accomplishment of the will of God on earth as in heaven. Those two verses, two sentences, all of history is within them. Everything is within them. Father George Kosicki, as I said, he's a hero of mine. He wrote, Pope St. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, he wasn't a saint when uh, he wrote this. Pope John Paul II recently wrote of a new and divine holiness 
with which the Holy Spirit wishes to enrich Christians at the dawn of the third millennium to make Christ the heart of the world. The new and eternal holiness is a maturing of the holiness Jesus revealed in the Gospels. So again, this is, in one sense it's new, and in another sense it's not new at all, it's completely old. It's a maturing of the same holiness Jesus revealed in the Gospels. Okay, back to Father Kosicki here. He says, it is living the fullness of the Lord's prayer. His kingdom come, that the Lord reign in our hearts now by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father Kosicki continues later, he says, we live the fullness of the Our Father by becoming holy through the Holy Spirit and doing and living in God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We are to become a living presence of Jesus, radiating his love and mercy as we live in and by his will. And by praying, give us this day our daily bread, we are asking for the grace we need to be a living presence of Jesus on earth, a living Eucharist. Okay, now, Father Kosicki there, he's commenting on uh, something Pope St. John Paul II said with this new and divine holiness, but what was Pope St., or who, I should say, was Pope St. John Paul II talking about when he said that? He was talking about a certain priest by the name of Hannibal, Father Hannibal de Francia, who we now know as Saint Hannibal de Francia, because he was canonized after that. And what was Saint Hannibal de Francia talking about with this new and divine holiness? the private revelations of Jesus to the servant of God, Luisa Picaretta. He said, this is a mission so sublime that none other can be compared to it. The triumph of the divine will upon the whole earth in conformity with what is said in the Our Father prayer. This is a canonized saint saying this about the mystic, the servant of God, Luisa Picaretta, who the church appointed him to be her spiritual director and he dedicates his life to promoting these revelations. He eventually says, I quote him, these must be made known to the world. Now he did all sorts of amazing things with his life. He started a religious order, he founded schools and everything. He was unbelievably active. But towards the end of his life, he wrote, I'm quoting him here as well, he says, I want you to know that since I have totally dedicated myself to the great work of the divine will, I practically don't concern myself at all with my institutes, <laughs> with the other things I started. And he's not condemning, those were very important works to this day. It's, it's a flourishing order, the Rogationists, very important. But he's saying like this kind of eclipsed everything. This mission was the greatest thing possible. He says this is the, this is the fulfillment of the Our Father. And um, so this is, this is his conviction. This is not just some random opinion he had. This is his absolute conviction from the depths of his heart, which he dedicates his life to. And um, you know, some people said, well, I don't see that in the Vatican's biography of, of St. Hannibal. Look, I don't know what that's supposed to prove. It's, it's, we, this is not uh, controversial. It's right here in the, Vatican's, uh, in the Vatican's printed biography of Louisa. We've got, I'll read the direct quotes in a moment here. But anyway, this is, it's not disputed that this was St. Hannibal's conviction for the last decade and a half or so of his life, life his mission. He's appointed by the church to be Louisa's spiritual director and he's so convinced that these must be made known to the world that he dedicates himself to this completely, to making these revelations known to the world. Now at this point, I wanted, and I don't know what I was thinking in terms of time, I wanted to walk you through the fathers of the church and the doctor, and as you see, I'm putting page after page after page aside here. I was, I don't know why I thought I'd get through all this, but it's like, it's because I, I couldn't help, I couldn't help but put this all in because it's amazing 
when you look at the fathers, the teachings of the fathers in divinization, and then they eventually come to the climax of the fathers and St. Maximus the Confessor, who St. Uh, John Paul II said is the bridge between the East and the West, and he says it's all about divinization, yes, but it's all about the transfer—the divinization is all about the transferring of the human will to the divine will. And then eventually, and then we go on to, we got father after father after father, and saint after saint after that, and doctor of the church after doctor of the church, talking about this same basic idea getting more and more and more bold with each passing century with their claims. So we get to St. Alphonsus of Liguori, doctor of the church. He said, a single act of uniformity with the divine will suffices to make a saint. <clears throat> he said, conformity with the divine will means that we join our wills to the will of God. Uniformity means more. It means we make one will of God's will and our will so that we will only what God's will, that God's will alone is our will. This is a doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus of Liguori, giving in his own pen here some of the most controversial aspects of Luisa's revelations a couple hundred years later. He's saying that a single act, people say, no, Luisa's revelations are making it too easy, you gotta go through the great rigorous process of the purgative and illuminative and unitive way of the mystical life, and, and that's absolutely true. That's all, that all remains absolutely important. Luis's revelations don't change any of that, even if you want to fully believe in them, and I, and I hope you do. I hope I convince the skeptics, but they don't change any of that. We still, that, that all remains absolutely true. This is additional. You keep doing all that. You keep up with all of the same pious practices. This is an additional thing that we ask for, this grace of living in the divine will. But if we're doing all that, St. Alphonsus is pointing out here that a single act of uniformity with the divine will can make you into a saint. You don't have to make a plan for 20 years down the line when eventually you'll be able to be a saint after enough time on your knees and enough time scourging yourself or something. I don't know. I mean, yeah, we got to pray and mortify and do everything. But you can actually become a saint right now. There's nothing in between. If you're a practicing Catholic in a state of grace, already doing everything you're supposed to be doing, pursuing sanctity, if you're already doing all that, you are one fiat away from being a great saint. And the only reason you're not a great saint right now, if you're not, I'm sure you all are, but if you're not, and I'm certainly not, is because we're holding something back from God. We don't want to give him our absolute, unconditional, blank check, fiat. Thy will be done. And all you need to say, and mean it. Jesus tells us, Louisa, I want this more than you do. If you want this, and yearn for it, and ask for it, you've made my will yours. So you say, Jesus, I trust in you. Thy will be done. I give you my will. Please give me yours in return. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So St. Alphonsus Liguori is settling some of the most controversial aspects of that for us here. And we get to the age of the 20th century mystics, a new era of spirituality. Father Chris, and I, now I got, I, got a, I got like two minutes left here before I got to get on to the next point. And I've got so much more I want to talk to you about Louisa herself here. I hope some of you can stay. Father Chris, unfortunately, has to run to speak at a conference. He's got to run out of here at about 12.30. So we'll have half an hour for objections and answers to objections. I'm going to stick around if you have to run, no offense. But I'm going to stick around after to try to get through more of this. But anyway, real quick here. We get to this 20th century where suddenly it's still a perfectly harmonious tr um, growth from tradition. But we're at this new level. Father Marie-Michel Philippon, this towering theologian, he, um, he was this huge promoter of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, 
before she was even a servant of God. He saw in her that there's something extraordinary, and now she's a canonized saint. So this priest, he, he, he had this mystical insight here. But he especially studied Blessed Conchita, who Father Chris quoted. Uh, she spoke about living in the divine will as well. And he said, a theologian must above all pose this question to himself. What did God wish to bring about through his humble servant? And he said, it's this, the greatest degree of holiness is attainable for everyone. And then he said, we are incontestably in a new era of spirituality. When you look at what Jesus says, to Blessed Conchita, to Saint Faustina, to Blessed Dina Belanger, to Servant of God Luisa Picaretta, we see that we're in this time of a new grace being offered. It doesn't, this doesn't make us look down on anybody of earlier ages, of course not. Is anybody, who, can you raise your hand if you're greater and better than Moses and Abraham? I'm not seeing any hands, and I'm, uh, thank you, because only, I, I'm glad you all know that only I'm greater than Abraham. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I saw one hand there, but no. No, of course, we're not greater than Abraham, but we have been given a, of course it was Giuseppe, yeah. It had to be Giuseppe, okay. Other than Giuseppe, none of us are greater than Abraham. But we've been given a greater gift, haven't we? And what is that? What did Abraham never receive that we have? Our Lord himself in the Eucharist. Doesn't make us greater. It's just where sin abounds, God is not around. No, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As Father Chris said in the beginning here, we're living in the most sinful times in the entire history of the world by far. And God saves the best wine for last. He's giving us, he's offering us this unbelievable grace. And he's just asking us for our fiat to give up our will, and to ask for his in return. And it doesn't make us greater than anybody else, of course not. No, I'm not greater than anyone, I'm a knucklehead. But I'm asking God for this grace, and I please ask all of you as well to ask for this grace that he's talking to us about through Louisa, through so many other mystics. And again, I'll stick around, and I'll talk more about Louisa herself, which I meant to do here, um, but we'll get to more in the objections here. But anyway, just, let's just pray one more time. Jesus, I trust in you. Thy will be done. I give you my will. Please give me yours in return. Our Lady, Queen of Heaven, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So I gotta head back down to the pew now to get the other mic so that we can start. Oh, oh, you have it, okay. I just gotta grab my other notes real quick. I'll be right back. Well, thank you, Daniel. And we are, with a little bit of time we got left, going to really throw at Daniel some problematic questions that many of you have been probably typing on your YouTube comments. What about this? What about this? So as Daniel's getting ready, I have a whole list and a lot of concerns. And so Daniel, I'm going to give you your mic right here, and I am going to read some of these. Feel free to come because, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and there's a lot of great theologians I respect tremendously that have concerns. Um, Colin Donovan, we work with at EWTN, great guy, has concerns. Tim Staples, Catholic Answers, guy I respect tremendously. His brother is a priest, many concerns. Jimmy Aiken, you all know how I feel about Jimmy Aiken. I feel one of the greatest, one of the greatest theologians in the church, many concerns. Father John Harden, one of the great, great priests of our time has many concerns. Father William Most has many concerns. 
and former bishops of her own diocese have many concerns. So Daniel, I'm going to start firing away. I don't know if you need to get a little closer to the podium. Yeah, just right around your ear. Okay. And so, okay. So um, I'm going to ask you some of these questions because these are some of the, the issues that have been brought up. Now, for instance, the current archbishop in her diocese of Trani speaks that there's fruit, but there are theological and orthographic difficulties. Okay. Then the former archbishop of her diocese, Picieri, in 2012, said that there, and this is the most recent official statement, stated that the unauthorized translations are not to be promoted. If we are not to promote them, we don't have an official translation. There is no English official translation. Her website has no mention of the bishop's decree. Any and every publication of these writings is absolutely forbidden at this time. Anyone who acts against this is disobedient and greatly harms the cause of the servant of God. How can we speak, Daniel, of these approved revelations when there's no approved authorized text yet and the church has asked us to refrain from publishing unofficial translations until the official comes? Now, I apologize because I'm going to only be able to give you a few minutes. Uh, yeah, I got to I'll leave and then you can answer more detail, but okay. let's give the executive summary right, for each right. one. So I'll okay. give a very quick answer. It won't be fully satisfying, I'm sure, because of our time here. I've answered them in all much more detail in my books. You can find them free on my web, the big one free on my website, at least. But anyway, let's do a quick answer to these. Um, all right, so I've got the 2012 communique that they're talking about here. And uh, we see paragraph 7 of it quoted a lot, whereas Father Chris rightly read, any and every publication of the writings is absolutely forbidden at this time. But all the critics of Louisa, I, they, they quote this, but I never see them quoting paragraph four or five or nine for some reason. <laughs> he says, in the same exact decree, I wish to address all those who claim that these writings contain doctrinal errors. This to date has never been endorsed by any pronouncement of the Holy See, nor personally by myself. I would like to note in this way that in addition to anticipating the legitimate judgment of the church, these persons cause scandal to the faithful. So the same uh, critics of Louisa say we can't uh, read her writings because of this decree, they're accusing her of error, and the bishop here is reproving them in the strongest of terms, saying, no, the church has never said there's any errors in this. In fact, everyone the church has ever given a mandate to study this has said, nope, no errors. It's private individuals who've taken it upon themselves to be inquisitors of Louisa who have said they contain errors. Okay, so, but again, the moratorium, this has to be taken seriously, absolutely. There's no official translation yet of Louisa's writing, so there's errors in her writings right now. You gotta be so careful. That's why I've got, I've got disclaimers galore every time I share these things saying, don't uh, always read these through the lens of the catechism. Anytime you think there might be any uh, tension whatsoever, you always side with the catechism over something you thought Louisa said. The church in due time will give us the official translation with the uh, official interpretation, and they might throw out some passages even. That's, that's up to the church, not me. For now, we stick with the main themes Anything that might be problematic, we leave aside. Leave it to the church. She'll take care of it. But anyway, in terms of why I believe we can share these readings now, in the same document from the bishop, paragraph 9, he says, Necessary prudence cannot lessen the ardor of those who feel compelled to spread the knowledge of the, san knowledge of the sanctity of the life of the servant of God or those who recommend the reading of her writings. 
or those who encourage a faithful prayer for beatification. All this is not only prohibited, it is very much desirable. So in the same decree, the bishop is saying it's, it's very desirable to read her writings. Well, how can we read her writings if we don't have them? <laughs> so, but the decree is saying don't publish it. He doesn't want books flying off the presses. Yeah, so if you have a printing press at home, yeah, do, not be, exactly. do not be working on these. Because so, they're going to be wrong when the official one comes okay. out in a couple of years, in a few years. So yeah. good point. Daniel will explain mm. a little bit more after I hit the road. Da yes. Daniel, the next question is one of the best articles that I think I found was by Tim Staples and his brother, who's a priest, that really summarized his concerns, I thought, as well as I had seen. Now, he basically goes far as saying, as there are some outrageous claims, dangerous delusions. I'm quoting his words, claiming that Louisa uh, has ushered in a new era in the church, these fiats you were talking about, this age of sanctification, and this kingdom of divine will are needed for salvation. Basically, what he's saying is, according to Louisa, Jesus' own words, quote, this will complete the work that is poured forth from me. Otherwise, the work of redemption would be incomplete. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, these are Jesus' words, right? But this is private revelation, is not needed for salvation. But yet, it seems Jesus is saying to Faustina, it's needed for salvation. Remember to Vatican II. I'm sorry, Luisa. Vatican II said, everything we need for holiness is handed down from the apostles. So how can this private revelation be something that is added to the apostles? Mm -hmm. Excellent question. So it's so important that we approach these realizing they're only a private revelation. So, it, you know, if there are individual lines, it might be a bit tricky. With Jesus saying that the work of redemption would not be complete with, uh, yeah. without um, the work, anyway, he's not saying that it's Luis's own writing this, that this completes. This will complete the work that poured forth for me. Otherwise, okay. the work of creation as well as redemption would remain incomplete. Right. So that's not that's Louisa doing it. Right. <laughs> so it's not Louisa doing that. It's Jesus doing that. And he's telling Louisa about it, like he's told many other mystics as well. And I, I could go on and on. I could spend hours here talking about other mystics he said that to. So it's the, Louisa is kind of, you know, think of Faustina as the secretary of divine mercy. You can think of Louisa as the secretary of the divine will. But what the church says is that no private revelation can quote, and this is the catechism paragraph 67, no private revelation can improve or complete, surpass or correct public revelation. Now, Luisa's private revelations never do any of that. Think about the difference between public revelation in Jesus Christ and private revelation through Luisa. Uh, unfortunately, there's all sorts of bogus private revelations that do try to improve, complete, surpass, or correct this. And they're all, of course, false. They try to say, oh, there's actually five persons in the Trinity. Or, oh, uh, we've actually, the Bible is actually not right on all these things. So here's Muhammad to tell us how it's the real thing. Or here's more, the Book of Mormon. So that's all, those are examples of what the church is condemning here. Now, there's actually a false quote. I'm sorry, Mr. Staples, but I, I looked up the Vatican II. It's not in there. The, the Dei Verbum does not say everything, everything we, need. we need for holiness and increase yeah, in faith. That's not in Vatican II. It doesn't say everything we need for holiness. That's his paraphrase of it. So it's everything that contributes. I wish I had the quote in front of me. Everything that contributes towards the holiness or something is given in the apostles. Well, so, the Eucharistic prayer one says what's been handed down from the apostles. Right. So, so we what, have it in the canon of the so, church. Yeah, so it's certainly, it's, so the public revelation has been handed once and, for, once and for all through the apostles. But what is the role of private revelation in that? It's only to explicate 
what's already been handed down, not to reveal publicly anything new in that sense. And that, again, is the whole point of Luis's writings. They're putting a magnifying glass on Matthew 6.10. Nothing new there. So, no new persons in the Trinity. You know, and then in public revelation, Jesus revealed himself divine. Luisa says she's the worst sinner on earth. Um, in public revelation, we got a new permanent church. In divine will, private revelation is just a spirituality that fits within the Catholic Church. Public revelation, we got seven sacraments instituted. Private revelation through Louisa, no new sacraments. Divine will is not a sacrament. Maybe we'll get to that later. Uh, public revelation, we got a new priesthood. Private revelation uh, through Louisa, no new priesthood. The Catholic priests, Jesus tells Louisa, are called to be the primary heralds of this. Public revelation, new liturgy, private revelation through Louisa, no new liturgy, liturgy is the same. In fact, Louisa herself wrote, the holy sacrifice of the mass teaches everything, teaches us everything we need to know, basically, she so said. bottom line, Daniel, you're saying it's she's not adding. Nothing to, added. Okay, yeah. very good. All right, let's jump on real quick. We can come back to those. Issue that I have tremendously that a lot of others do is Louisa's claims to a new level of holiness saying a way of being united to God that has only been lived by three people. Mm -hmm. Take a guess who the three are. Adam, Eve, and Mary. What about St. Joseph? Right. What about John the Baptist? Right. Now, she also says she will be seated at the right hand of Jesus. Isn't that Mary's place? So I looked that up. That's not true. That's not what it says. <laughs> Jesus tells Louise says she'll be at the left hand. But the whole point of that is we can all be at the left hand with her. Only Mary is at the right hand. So well, I, I found that quote. God the Father's at his Yeah, so hand. within the Trinity, he's, God the <laughs> he's at the right hand of the Father. But with, but with relation to creatures, the Blessed Virgin Mary is at his right. And he says, okay, Luis, I'm inviting you to the left, but we're all invited to be with but her But God the, the Father's on the left. Within the Trinity, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's he good. He can bilocate that's himself. Good. Okay, all right. Now, Jesus supposedly refers to Louisa as a second mother of the church. Again, isn't that Mary's role? Right. Now, in the book of heaven, Jesus supposedly says, I have called you first over other souls <coughs> because to know other souls, no matter how much I love them, have I shown how to live in my will? This seems strange mm -hmm. because the promoters of divine will claim that without referring to her writings and her fiat, it's impossible for us to reach the fullness of sanctity. This seems difficult right. to accept. And that's a, that is a huge problem. And I disagree with those followers who would say it's impossible without Louisa. That would make Louisa some sort of mediatrix of grace, mm -hmm. which she's not. Only Our Lady is. Mm -hmm. But I think, that I think they're contradicting what Jesus told Louisa. Jesus told Louisa, direct quote here, with you I opened the doors. So he's not saying Louisa is the door. He's saying with you I opened the doors. Mm -hmm. Now, he, and then he says, since I have opened the doors, others may enter, provided that they dispose themselves. It's such a great good. Faustina... Conchita, Blessed Dina Belgeit, none of them knew anything about Louisa, and yet it's, beyond, it's undeniable that they lived in the divine will, if you read their writings. So clearly Louisa is not necessary for this. Now she's extremely helpful, that's why I promote this, but it's, it's some followers of Louisa, unfortunately they exalt the person of Louisa way too much, and that's a problem. So I agree, and I'm glad we're covering these, even though I've, I don't agree with the, the critics, it's God allows this so that we can clarify things. Jesus also told Louisa, I was placing you near the sovereign queen so that she, having lived in the kingdom of the divine fiat, that you might imitate her, wanting to make of you a copy that resembles her. I placed you in her hands. So he's telling Louisa, I placed you in Our Lady's hands that she might guide you and assist you. But the critics, and he talks about the critics even back in her day, says they, sinisterly misinterpreting the sense, spoke as if I had told you that you were as though another queen. He says, how much nonsense. I did not say that you were like the celestial queen. 
but that I want you similar to her, just like I've said to many other souls dear to me, that I wanted them similar to me. But with this, they would not become God like me. So he's telling Louisa, no, I, yes, I want you similar to the Blessed Virgin Mary, but you're not another queen. He says that's nonsense. So Jesus himself in Louisa's writings are saying it's nonsense to say you're another queen, you're another Blessed Virgin Mary. So good clarification. Now, the next one that is, let's talk about the um, development of tradition or the continuation development of revelation. Now, Jesus said, this is what Tim Staples points out, I think is very powerful. Since Jesus has deposited this new doctrine with Louisa, the only way to receive the understanding necessary to acquire the gift of divine will is to have recourse to her writings. You kind of touched on mm -hmm. this. Now, this is problematic because it's private revelation. The church teaches private revelation is not necessary for salvation. And in fact, um, the church teaching is that private revelation must be connected through scripture and tradition. Here's the point. Where in tradition, for example, do we have the teaching of a third fiat? Uh, to bring out our sanctification and redemption to completion. Is she adding to the deposit of faith? Because we can't have that. But is she saying that in her writings, she's saying that we must have this age of sanctification. We are seeing private revelation kind of become necessary for salvation. Mm -hmm. Are we reading it the wrong way? Are we being told the th wrong thing about what her real intent is in her writings? Right. Yeah, so private revelation, it, cannot, it is never a universal and objective necessity for salvation. That's very important to remember. Even, even the most highly approved revelations, private revelations possible, you're not a formal heretic if you deny them. You're also not a formal heretic if you deny the 2 plus 2 equals 4. <laughs> There's no dogma saying that's the case, but you shouldn't deny that because it's true. And a lot of Catholics don't seem to realize it. Uh, don't let me, don't, I shouldn't say a lot. Some Catholics seem to not realize you are allowed to use your brain. You're, you're allowed to use it. You're allowed to discern something and realize this is true. And if you realize something's true, you don't have to waste the rest of your life fretting over whether it's public or private. You can just believe it. You know, we've got all these ideas how to save the church. We've got our committees and our marketing strategies and our plans. Let's try listening to heaven. God's got things to say. He's got very important things to say. And I, I remember so well listening to Father Seraphim talking about St. Faustina years and years ago. He said, yeah, it's, it's a private revelation. And he, he didn't give a big speech on it like I am now. He just said, so you, you're not required to believe it, but it would be foolish not to. <laughs> it would be foolish not to. So it's, it's important. Net, is Luisa necessary? No. Jesus is telling Louisa about necessary things that he's going to do one way or the other. Louisa herself is, a, is, just, is just a human being like us. She herself... So I, she's so, not the way, she points us to right, the way. Right, right. She's, she's one mystic pointing us to the way. And I that's, think the chief, important. I think she and Festina are the chief ones here. But yeah, she's pointing. She's not the door. Jesus is the door and Our Lady as well. Double door. And now the next one, Daniel, I want to talk about is we talked a lot about supplementing our will for the divine will. Now, this is interesting because um, this is again pointed out by Tim Staples that the sacrament of the divine will, which you've shown not is a not a sacrament, um, that here's, here's basically what it says. It seems Louisa has taught that when one receives this divine will, the human will ceases to function. That's what I described. I think it sounds very powerful. 
uh, and that the divine will acts in the creature in such a way that our action is divine. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, hasn't this been condemned by the church as monothelitism, as a heresy? Very important point. So monothelitism and quietism are two related heresies. Monothelitism is a Christological heresy. It says Jesus only had one will, the divine will. But the funny thing is that Jesus specifically tells Louisa, I had a human will. So he, 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 he directly rebuts the monothelite heresy to Louisa. So I'm not sure why people accuse Louisa of monothelitism when it's specifically uh, rejected in there. Quietism is a broader heresy that demand that it, it's, it was condemned in uh, the 1600s by Pope Pius, uh, I can't remember which pope, in Celestis Pastorzi Encyclical. It was condemned with 43 propositions. And that's what the heresy of quietism consists in those propositions. Basically, the human will has to be rendered entirely passive. It can't do anything. Anything you will, any, anything, any intention, it's all evil. You have to just annihilate your will. And that's not the case. And that's yet. not what we want to do. That's not important. In fact, Jesus specifically tells Louisa, my daughter, the human will on its own is nauseating. <laughs> so yeah, we're nauseating uh, on, on our own. But it's our greatest but gift. Then he says the next phrase, he says, but united with mine, it's the most beautiful thing I created. The human will is the greatest it's the free most will. Be yeah, it's so a beautiful it, gift. So he's not, and Jesus tells Luis, I want your will little, not annihilated. He says, my will doesn't annihilate what your will does, it embellishes it. So your will, this is the opposite of quietism. And, and, and Father John Harden, I love him. He's, I read him all the time, but he was just a little confused in this point. He thought Louisa's writings had quietism in him. It's, they, they are constantly saying the opposite of quietism. You're handing your will over to Jesus. And Louisa writes in her own letters, Jesus does not want our will dead or annihilated. He wants it little. She says the exact Saint same Therese. thing St. Therese of Lisieux says, so that his will can animate our will. And when his will is animating our will, then our will is actually embellished and animated it's, it's more energized, not less. My hand, is my hand annihilated because my, my, my soul is making it move right now? Of course not. It's actually more a, a human hand when I, my soul is telling it what to do. It's the same thing with your, your own soul. Jesus tells Louisa he wants the divine will to become like the soul of your soul. And Pope St. John Paul II said the same thing. He says, sanctity, the goal of sanctity is for the Holy Spirit to become the soul of your soul, just like your soul is the soul of your body. Great answer. Okay, a couple quick last ones before I shove off to Albany. Uh, first of <laughs> all, the saying, church has not, she's, she's servant of God, mm -hmm. okay? This is the process through to canonization, but she's not yet venerable, which means that the Vatican has not yet declared her work orthodox. Right. So how can we be guaranteed that her work is orthodox, which only comes when she hits venerable? She's not venerable yet. Right. So, yeah, so the, the cause of canonization, a bunch of phases. First, when it's opened, when you open a cause of canonization, the person is called servant of God. But it's confusing, because there's actually two different stages of the cause of canonization where they're called servant of God, but it's different. Right after it's opened, there's not necessarily been a church declaration on holiness and orthodoxy. But when the diocese of the person transfers the cause to the Vatican, they only ever do that after the official diocesan inquiry has declared the person holy and orthodox. Louisa's cause was open in 1994. That's when she became servant of God. And that's why, in fact, all these criticisms we're reading, they're all from the 90s. Um, the, uh, but her cause, but after, 50, uh, after 10 years, the diocese finished their part of the inquiry. And in 2005, they declared her holy and they declared her writings orthodox. That was 2005. So the church 
has ruled. Not the Vatican yet. The Vatican. But the diocese. But the diocese has. Okay. And, and that's the, not like, that's sure, that's not the Vatican, okay. but it's still a big deal. Okay, yeah. what about the imprimaturs? Mm -hmm. we, we hear Father Anuzi and others say you can't dispute her because her, work, her works have imprimaturs. My books have imprimaturs and neolabstats. Do you think I'm infallible? Of course not. So how do we answer that when people are saying that she has the imprimatur, therefore you can't dispute her? An imprimatur does not say that the church states that it's supernatural origin. It just says there's nothing contrary to the faith right. and it can be printed. Um, how do we answer that? Right. Because there's others who are using it as a weapon that you can't challenge mm -hmm. these writings. Yeah, and let me just say, I'm not gonna go, I won't go into detail, but there are private revelations that have imprimaturs that I don't believe in. So let me just throw that out there right now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm skeptical, at least I'm mm -hmm. very skeptical of, of Luisa's I do believe in. The imprimaturs are not why we should believe this is supernatural. The imprimatur, mm -hmm. and now the, mm -hmm. the problem is the critics, they shift the goalposts. They accuse her of heresy, and then they say the imprimaturs don't need anything because imprimaturs are not constat de supernaturalitates. So a constat de supernaturalitates and the church says this is supernatural in origin. And that's not what an imprimatur does. But an imprimatur does say, an Ihel Obstat says nothing stands in the way, an imprimatur says it may be published. And that's the ecclesiastical approbation saying there's no contradictions of church teaching in these writings. That's the church saying that. It's not an infallible decree, of course not, but it's still very significant. So the imprimaturs, the point of the imprimaturs is the imprimaturs refute those who say that Luisa's writings have errors. If you want to see why Luisa is authentic, why she's a valid mystic, and, and these writings are supernatural in origin, you look at the fact that a canonized saint dedicated his life to promoting them. You look at the fact that Padre Pio strongly endorsed Luisa. You look at the fact that she lived for decades on the Eucharist alone, that her life was full of miracles, that, that she has, her writings are full of fulfilled prophecies, that she's a servant of God. Mm -hmm. that, it's like that, those are the things you look to to see God's at work here. The imprimaturs just say, this is orthodox. They don't say it's supernatural. So speaking of Saint, and you pronounce it Hannibal? Saint Hannibal, that's what I say. Hannibal? Least, yeah. Hannibal, he himself, now this was her spiritual director. So he himself is her spiritual director. This is interesting because he believed in her revelations, mm -hmm. but his biography posted by the Vatican has no mention of her. Neither does John Paul's canonization homily of Saint Hannibal makes any mention of her. Mm -hmm. And St. Hannibal himself said, I'm going to quote him, Daniel, there are points that however true and holy they may be when looked at with the spirit and holy simplicity, prudence would still restrain from us publishing it. Right. This is from his letter of February 22nd, 1927. And so how do we answer that? Yeah. And that's why you've got, that's why I'm, con and some followers of Luisa don't like me precisely because I'm constantly insisting, be careful, there's errors in this, always filter everything through catechism, always go back to that. These, there's, there's things that we need to wait on the church for the, for the proper interpretation of. So leave aside anything that, that is problematic. The church will tell us how to approach those. Stick with the gist, stick with the main themes, strive for the gift of living in the divine will. Pray, long for, and pray for the arrival of its kingdom. Things like that. The hours of the passion, the blessed Virgin Mary, and the kingdom of the divine will, and the main themes in the volumes. You can't go wrong with those. But yes, there are, as St. Hannibal rightly said, difficulties in here that the church will settle 
in due time. So we wait for that, above all, sticking with the catechism. So at this point, Daniel, I'm going to leave it to you to finish. Um, I'll see <laughs> I'm sorry you. I took too long. I'll, no, 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 you stay right <laughs> up here. I'll see you ladies at the Women's Conference in Albany in 45 minutes. I'm going to be late for my talk, I think, but that's my fault. So what I want to do is just leave it with Daniel. My biggest thing, and maybe you can address as I head out the door, is just does this add to public revelation? Mm -hmm. You have said it does not. There's no adding, yeah. This is where I think the confusion comes. Mm -hmm. So if you are uh, wanting to read her writings to follow, I believe fully what Daniel is saying. I embrace this because his explanation I find to be very effective. She is not adding to the deposit of the faith. Right. She's right. not creating a new sacrament. There may be some misunderstanding that in some way it, her writings are, are, are necessary. He has stated and shown they are not. Um, the private revelation, yes, came to us from the apostles and ended, public revelation, public revelation I'm sorry, yeah. did I say private? Public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. Nothing adds to that. But God has developed doctrine throughout history. And can she be a tool to help further develop that doctrine? The doctrine of the, or even the dogma of the Immaculate Conception wasn't mm -hmm. declared until 1854. Does that mean that it was invalid before? Right. Absolutely not. So with that, be not afraid. Stay with the scriptures, stay with the catechism. Um, and in my case, stay with Daniel O'Connor. <laughs> Don't stay with because, me. <laughs> stay with because, Father Chris. <laughs> uh, uh, we went to seminary together, outstanding man. And, um, and Daniel, thank you. And thank God you, bless Father. you. We God appreciate you. you being God here. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> And, and feel free, Daniel's going to follow up on a few. Daniel, I'm going to leave you my questions right here. Okay. So you can feel free okay. to answer any more you want to say on these. We're Absolutely. heading out. But God bless you. And you can stay finishing up with Daniel right now. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Father. So I have to clear out of here in 20 minutes to make way for uh, the rosary and the devotions in here. I would love to stick around as long as I can. But I fully understand if you got to go, you got somewhere to be, you got to go to the bathroom. I promise I won't be offended if you have to head out. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you do that as I'm just organizing my notes here. And I don't think I, is this one? This one's working. Okay, good. Just going to take off this. Uh, head down to the pew for one second to get, grab my other piece of paper. So I actually, I'm going to clear out of here in 15 minutes to give them time, enough time to set up for the devotions here. That leaves me just a little bit to cover another two hours of material in 15 minutes. Can I do it? Let's see. All right. I brought this book with me because I wanted people to see that I'm reading out of this because I, I want people to realize I'm not making this up. This is from the Vatican's official biography of the servant of God, Luisa Picaretta, the son of my will. So this is very uh, trustworthy, very authoritative. But... The intro to it here gives really the, the, one of the best overviews of Louisa's spirituality, her mysticism. <clears throat> and this preface of the son of my will 
This was written by Cardinal Jose Saraiva Martins. He was the prefect of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints under Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. So if there's anyone alive who knows what makes a saint and a valid mystic, it's this guy. And he's writing the preface for this book, and he's talking about Louisa, and he says, he begins this by saying, we are living in a time of mercy. So he introduced it, this cardinal cho chooses to introduce Louisa Picaretta and living in the divine will by saying we are living in a time of mercy. And that's why these, the, I mean, that's one of a million reasons I believe these two revelations, private revelations go hand in hand. But then he goes on later here in the preface to say the profound testimony of Luisa Picaretta shows us the dynamic that is so typical of God's mercy and draws people to the deepest unity with him in order to transform the heart into a gushing spring of water to benefit everyone. This, thus, in her simple life as a laywoman who worked making lace, bound to the church by an adamant obedience to her confessors, one sees her nailed to her bed of suffering for about 70 years in order to create a magnificent masterpiece for the love of all creatures. Let me take a moment to talk about that. 70 years. So Louisa, as I said briefly in passing, she, was, uh, she subsisted for decades on only the Eucharist. So obviously, huge miracle there. She needed no sustenance other than the Eucharist. She was given, uh, Pope St. Pius X gave permission for Mass to be said in her, de in her bedroom every single day. He believed in her revelations, by the way. This is not in Son of My Will, but it is recounted in other biographies of Louisa that when St. Hannibal de Francia brought Lu Louisa's revelations on the Passion to Pope St. Pius X, he said, these should be read while kneeling, because this is Jesus speaking, Pope St. Pius X. That's recounted in, I think, Father Bucci's biography of Louisa. Anyway, she had this mystical phenomena so she was bedridden, as plenty of people have been, but she was much more than bedridden. Every single day, every single morning, she woke up for a supernatural reason alone, absolutely rigidly immobile, solid block of lead practically. She couldn't move at all. A strong man couldn't move her. Like It was impossible every single morning. She was a block of lead practically. The only thing that restored her to motion each morning was a Catholic priest coming in and blessing her. And at that moment, she would be miraculously restored to mobility. Every day for 70 years almost. No soul in the entire history of the church has been as, as dependent on priests, as dependent on the church as Louisa. And Jesus tells Louisa, I wanted it that way. I wanted you so radically dependent on the church because that's how these revelations must be understood entirely through the church. All right, continuing on here. Cardinal Martin says, in her continual contemplation of Jesus's passion, Louisa is led to conform herself to Christ to the point of offering herself with him to the Father for the benefit of all humanity. She learns from the book of the cross that the will of God is not about carrying orders received, but a gift in which one must place before all else the center of one's life. This living in the divine will is the actual way in which the Son Jesus lived on earth, bringing here with him the life of heaven. 
So he's affirming here, this cardinal is affirming right here in the preface of this book, the central component of Louis's revelations, that this gift of living in the divine will, it's real and it is the way, it is the mode of the operation of Jesus himself while he was on earth with his human will. That doesn't, obviously doesn't make us God, but we can have this same type of union of wills where our human will is perfectly united to the divine will and in fact living in it. And he quotes Pope Benedict XVI, he says, Pope Benedict XVI recalled this in a passage of his encyclical letter, Deus Caritas Est, when he affirmed the love story between God and man consists in the very fact of this communion of, this communion of will increases, a communion of thought and sentiment, and thus our will and God's will increasingly coincide. God's will is no longer foreign for me, sorry, it's no longer for me an alien will, something imposed on me from without, by the commandments, but it is now my own will. That's Pope Benedict XVI in an encyclical. And Cardinal Martins continues, it says, living in this way means that even our smallest act takes part in the, in the dynamic of mercy, contributing with Jesus to bring his light to all hearts and to God, all the praise and adoration that everyone ought to give him. He says that Louisa transformed her entire heart into a dwelling place for God alone. Those who met her felt drawn to the truth of heaven and compelled to live a life of holiness, a life spent entirely engaged in ordinary everyday activities. So it doesn't necessarily change externally what you're doing in your life, but modeled after the family of Nazareth. And Jesus, and I'll, this is not a quote here, but Jesus tells Louisa that the kingdom will come one Nazareth at a time. You make your own family a holy family. And it is precisely in the everyday, back here to the press, it is precisely in the everyday that God's mercy seeks out humanity to restore to them the innocence of Eden. And that's right there in the book. The fiat, Jesus tells Louisa, we came forth from the fiat, therefore to the fiat we must return before the end. St. Thomas Aquinas says, all things find their perfection in returning to their origin. So that's the same thing that Jesus is telling Louisa, is that the perfection that once was must come again, but it will be even greater. Because what do we pray at the Easter vigil? We say, oh, we say, oh happy fault, which brought for us so great a redeemer. So by the fall of Adam, and that, that, that meant that Christ came as a suffering savior. And Jesus tells Louisa this as well. He says that my coming upon earth and redemption and dying on the cross, it actually elevated human nature to an even higher dignity than the fall, than before the fall. Jesus tells Louisa that. So you might be wondering, well, how then is living in the divine will restoring Eden if we're already higher? In one sense, Christian holiness is higher than Eden. In another sense, it's not. We still need to live perfectly united to the divine will as they did. We have this Christian holiness now, which in one sense surpasses Eden. Aquinas talks about this also in the Summa. But now what he wants is this kingdom of the divine will to come to restore the innocence of Eden, the living in the divine will, with also the grace of Christianity. And that is his ultimate plan. That is what he will bring about before the end of time. It won't be an exact replication of Eden. We'll never, there will be differences. Jesus tells Louisa it'll be almost. He doesn't explain what he said, what exactly he means by almost. So we don't need to worry about the details. It's not up to us to know the future perfectly. 
but we do know the overarching plan. And Jesus tells Louisa, I'm so sorry, my notes got all messed up here, so I'm probably not going to find it in time. But he tells Louisa that this is why it's so important that all that is needed, I'll just paraphrase here because I remember well enough. People wonder, well, why are you, this is only private revelation. You don't need it anyway. Why not ignore it? Well, here's why you don't want to ignore it. He says, all that's needed for the kingdom to come is people to lay down their lives and sacrifice themselves to make it known, to proclaim it. He says, because it can't come until enough people are longing for it and desiring it and praying for it. And he says, I want to give this gift, but I want people to know what they are receiving first. And this is not, as I said, this is not a new dispensation. This is nothing like that. This is not a passing away of the age of the church. It's the triumph of the church. As Father Kosicki said, it's the Eucharistic reign. Jesus tells Louisa, that the Eucharistic sacrament which I left as food in order to give my children perfect health. He laments here, many eat it over and over again, but they appear always sick. Poor food of my very life, hidden under the veils of the accidents of bread. Too many remain infirm. This is why I long so much for the coming of the kingdom of the supreme fiat, because then everything I did in coming upon earth will serve as food for those who enjoy perfect health. What will be my contentment in seeing in the kingdom of my will that everything I did will serve no longer as food for the sick, but as food for the children of my kingdom. The sacraments, my sacramental life, will serve as food, as delight, as new happiness for the life of the supreme fiat which they will possess. The kingdom of my will will be the true echo of the celestial fatherland. He says it'll be the echo of heaven on earth when his will reigns here. He talks about it being the echo of heaven on earth. Even a greater union will, he says, will almost see them, the blessed in heaven. It'll be so uni- the communion of saints will be so palpable when this kingdom comes. He says, what will be my happiness? in giving myself sacramentally to the children of my eternal fiat and finding my own life in them. Then will my sacramental life have its complete fruit. As the species are consumed, I will no longer have the sorrow of leaving my children. And everything I did in redemption will serve no longer as remedy, but as delight, as joy, as happiness, as beauty ever growing. So the triumph of the supreme fiat will give complete fruit to the kingdom of redemption. This is the flourishing of Christianity. This is the flourishing of public revelation. It's the bearing of the fruit of redemption. It's everything that the saints have always been working towards. And we are so blessed to be alive now in the most exciting times in the history of the world. When the triumph of the divine mercy and the divine will is imminent. And I have two minutes here before I promised I'd clear out. And I also promised I would answer at least a couple questions if I can fit it in here. Yes, ma'am. You're on the right track. In fact, Jesus tells Louisa, You do not have to do new things, but live your life as I gave it to you, but in my will. So these devotions, it's crazy. Like, if you have a whole life you need to fill up, you'll never scratch the surface of of the divine will revelations. They're unbelievably deep and broad. If you're an unbelievably busy person that only has 30 seconds a day free to spare, these are also for you. 
All you need to do is ask every day to live in God's will and to mean, to mean it, to mean the central petition of our Father from the depth of your heart. And Jesus tells Louise, as soon as you've sincerely desired it and given me your will, you've made my will yours. He says, and that's it. It's all in that. Now, yes, there's a ton more, and I encourage you to explore it as, as, as you can. But all of that can come naturally and gracefully when, when you feel ready for it. It's not like some burden to impose on you. What you. All you have to do right now is ask for his will. Mean it. Jesus, I trust in you. Thy will be done. I give you my will. Please give me yours in return. And try every day to mean that more and more. As long as you're trying to mean it more and more, that, that's, that, that's how you do it. You keep trying. And I've, I could probably fit in another couple of questions. Yes. <laughs> so this is a big part of Luisa's writings, doing all of your acts in the divine will. So how can we, how can we uh, invite Jesus in to do our acts in the divine will? So this is an amazing part of, uh, major part of Luisa's writings. This, this act, this notion of acts, and an act, that's nothing weird. That just means anything you think, say, or do. Anything that proceeds from your will. Jesus himself wants to be the one doing it. So anything Louisa would do, she would, she would say, okay, it's not I who want to do this, it's Jesus who wants to do this. So from the stupidest little thing to the biggest thing. Jesus wants to brush, wants to brush my teeth, so that's, that's what we're doing. Jesus is brushing my teeth. You, you invite him to take over. You invite him to take over your will, so as Father Chris said earlier, you take the back seat. You're still, you're not annihilated. Your will is not annihilated. You're still active, but your will is made little. And you're asking for the divine will to act in you. So as much as you can remember throughout the day, no matter what task you're doing, and this is especially good actually for like otherwise seemingly menial labor, like mindless labor, this can be made such a spiritually powerful regimen if you try to do it as an act in the divine will. Jesus, please, please, uh, when I'm, working on my house. I say, Jesus, please hammer in my hammering. Drive in my driving. We're all driving a lot. Please drive in my driving. He'll do it. That, that's what he's saying. He's, he wants to actually act in you and through you. So it's like, it's very much like the little way of St. Therese of Lisieux, taken up to the exalted, even to a higher level still. But if you're already doing the little way of Therese of Lisieux, you're very much doing this already in a, in a big sense. Just kind of make that extra step to ask Jesus to truly do it in you, in the divine will, and he will. I think I have one more minute before I promised I'd clear out, unless my clock is wrong. Any, any other questions I could squeeze into a minute? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Fiat. Yes, or let it be done. Either way, you know, the Latin there. So fiat lux, you know, let there be light. Fiat voluntas tua, thy will be done. So it's really just an acceptance of the divine will. The fiat is just yes to God's will, definitely. Yes or let it be done, either way. But the, what, what Jesus, I, maybe this is the best thing to end on here because this is the summary of it all is making the fiat, the thy will be done, the motto and the mantra of your whole life. And if you're doing that, you can't go wrong. So thank you so much for coming out. I don't want to neglect my promises to clear out here, give them time. Oh, my book is um, Thy Will Be Done. And I, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it should be available just about anywhere. I meant to get into so much more. I apologize I, that I prepared way too much, but you'll find it all in there. So thank you again.
please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian Helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.